Um, well, it's weird. Just two weeks ago, we were in BTI, and now we're just in a totally different place. So um, we are here. Today, we're doing Module 5, Session 4. I may or may not get through all of it. It is 1 Corinthians, uh, First and 2 Corinthians, and I, I don't know if I'll get through it. Um, before we pray, just showing you, this is uh, the Temple of Apollo in Corinth, and the Apostle Paul would have presented the gospel probably on those steps. And that's, a, that's phenomenal to me to see actual places where uh, people were. So um, for the last eight years, I've been using a clicker and I feel like something's wrong without it. So I'll keep forgetting um, and I will attempt to remember how to do this. All right. First and second Corinthians. And I got a little message here. Is it showing up there? Oh, well, it doesn't matter. All right. Let's pray. And then we're going to begin walking through these glorious books. Thank you, Father, so much uh, again for our brand new facility. Thank you for the opportunity to spread the word of God the way it has been spread for thousands of years. Just simply by the people of God gathering together, hearing your word and spreading the good news of the gospel through their own contacts, their own spheres of influence. And we pray that would continue to be the case. Lord, I pray that we... Uh, begin a new era of Bible Training Institute here, and we enjoy our time together in this room. Thank you, Lord, for the extra space we have. Thank you for all the gifted people who provide our technology for us that help us learn. Lord, I pray that you would bless our time today and that you would uh, help us to know your mind, know your will, know your heart all the better through the books of First and Second Corinthians. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So again, this is uh, Module 5, Session 4, First and 2 Corinthians. And we'll spend most of our time on the letters all together. Uh, and then if we get to it, we'll, we'll do a, a second part in 2 Corinthians. That's why I said I'm not sure we'll get through everything um, today. So uh, this is as good a time as any to kind of give you a little writing note. And here's the writing note. I'm going to, there we go. Um, When you're writing your Bible book reviews, for those of you who are doing papers, and I want to encourage all of you to consider that, uh, sit in here maybe for a a module and then take a deep breath and do it. But just a little technical note here. The proper notation for writing books of the Bible that have a number before them is as follows. If you're writing in Paul's letter of 2 Corinthians, you use the number 2, which stands for 2nd. Uh, our British brothers and sisters would say 2 Corinthians, which is actually easier to remember. If you're beginning a sentence with the book, 2 Corinthians begins with, then you spell out the word 2nd. So just a little note there, and, and nobody's grading you on that. Well, Jay might be. I don't know. Are you, yeah, he's, he, yeah he'll, he'll start. <clears throat> but we, we want to be accurate, and that's, a, that's a, a common notational error that I want to help you avoid. Um, and uh, somebody asked me just a couple weeks ago, why do we care about anything academic whatsoever? Uh, the reason we care about things academic is because precision is what the Word of God demands. And so we want to be precise as, uh, as uh, often as we can be. I was sitting in a theology class once where somebody uh, made the mistake of asking the professor why it matters how we uh, notate our footnotes and our bibliography. And he said, why does that matter? And his answer was stunning. He said, if you won't take care of the details and something as mundane as a footnote, how should we trust you to take care of the details with the word of God, with the people of God? And boy, lesson learned, mouth shut. Um, So that's why we do as many little details as we can. That's what that's about. So let's just introduce the Corinthian letters. There's a massive quantity of information about them. And we'll go as as quickly as we need to. Um, They're both authored by the Apostle Paul. And one thing I would note to you is that um, 1 and 2 Corinthians are our primary source for knowing Paul. Do I need to move back? I bet all of you can't see. Look how easy this is in this room. That was easy. They're our primary source for knowing all about Paul. And so if you want to get to know the Apostle Paul, and there have been dozens and dozens of really good biographies written about Paul, and they primarily reference First and Second Corinthians, because that's where we get to know him. And even more than that, Second Corinthians, uh, you've heard us refer to First and Second Timothy and Titus 
as the pastoral epistles. Well, the real pastoral epistle, we would say, is 2 Corinthians. That gives you the heart of a pastor. And so you'll see that as you've been skimming through it. The recipients, the church at Corinth. I want to spend a little bit of time on this church. And I've got a couple of notes here, but uh, there's more I'd like to say. 30% of everything that Paul has written is devoted to the Corinthian church. And what does that tell us? It tells us, first of all, um, our doctrines of bibliology tell us that if there's a preponderance of material devoted to something, that means it was important to God. So it should be important to us. So 30% of everything Paul has to say is directed to this church. Therefore, it should be important to us. We know more about Paul's relationship to Corinth than any other church except Ephesus. We have a lot of information about Ephesus from the book of Acts. And what's unusual about the church at Corinth is that Paul is ministering to raw pagans. People who, who went from total, uh, ha- having no intersectionality at all with uh, Christianity, with Judaism at all, to being in Christ. And so, uh, and you can imagine the problems this would cause a church filled with people like this. Chapter 6, verse 9 gives a list of those who will not inherit the kingdom. And Paul says, and such were some of you. And it's a horrific list. And so you have a church filled with former thieves and adulterers and cheats and swindlers and revilers. Uh, Revilers are, are abusive men, abusive women. So you have a church filled with these people recently saved. So the church was not made up of people who were Gentile God-fearers who had somehow started uh, cleaning up their lives hearing Moses preached in the synagogue. And let me, let me address that for a minute. Can you be saved by doing good works prior to salvation? Of course not. We, we acknowledge that. We understand that. Do you work your way slowly to salvation? No. Salvation is a one-time transaction. You were once children of darkness, now you're children of light. But is it useful and is it a blessing when somebody begins to sense at some human level that they're immoral, that they're sinful, and that they begin to read even, even read the Bible or read uh, Christian authors and start to clean up their lives over a period of years before finally coming to faith in Christ? Is that useful? It is. And I can prove it to you. All of you who have children, uh, you have taught them to pray and you have, you have let them pray. Now, do you tell a five-year-old, I'm sorry, you can't pray. You are a pagan doomed for hell until you come to faith in Christ. So don't you dare speak to my Savior. No, we don't do that. We teach them to pray. Why? Because when they get saved, what they have learned will kick in. And we, we have good friends in our family that were uh, unsaved fakes in the church for 30 years. And in their early 60s, they came to faith in Christ. And their testimony is that all the Bible they'd learned, all the prayers they'd prayed, all the hymns they'd memorized, all suddenly came to fruition. And they matured in the faith like a rocket. So don't denounce somebody for trying to do good things. You, you, you tell them you can't get saved doing that. I'm glad you're trying to clean up your life, but that won't uh, gain any merit with the Lord. But I'm always so thankful when somebody comes to faith in Christ and they've been in the church for a long time because they've, they've got a bit of a head start. The Corinthians didn't have that at all. Uh, uh, imagine a person you know or work with that has never been in church one day in their life. They don't know anything about the faith. They've lived immorally completely. Multiply them by 500 and start a church with them. That no, no man in his right mind would want to pastor that church because it's just an uphill climb. So just a little digression there. Acts 12 argues that almost all of the Corinthian Christians were completely raw pagans. And when I say raw pagans, I mean, think about the worst of the worst through all of history. And that's who you have. So they had a long way to go for their conduct to match their profession of faith. So what did Paul tell them? One of his most famous phrases that we mentioned it last week, 1 Corinthians 2, 2, that he determined to know Christ and him crucified. He just pounded on Christ and on the gospel and on the cross continually with the Corinthians. That's where he had to be. Some in the church were slaves, some were free, some were married, some were divorced. First um, Corinthians 7 presents a, a very difficult situation in that all these raw pagans, many of them uh, had unbelieving spouses. And so Paul addresses that issue in 1 Corinthians 7. 
So the point is, they're a church made up of those who had very recently been completely worldly, all of them starting at the same starting point. Let me put it to you this way. Uh, picture a man who uh, every, every Thursday evening, he doesn't go home. He goes and uh, goes to a, an illegal gambling venue and gambles some money. And maybe, he, maybe he wins some, maybe he loses some. But his family is always uh, waiting for him to maybe lose the family fortune. On Friday... Sometimes he shows up for work, sometimes he doesn't. But every Friday evening, he's out till midnight, one, two, three in the morning, drinking his way to oblivion until he finally staggers home. Saturday morning, he wakes up hungover and the kids know to avoid him and to stay away from him. And his wife has long given up on any sort of uh, reasonable marriage. Saturday afternoon, he goes out into the marketplace to kind of clear his head and he runs into a guy named Paul. And Paul presents the gospel to him. And this man says, I need Christ. And he gets saved. And Sunday morning, he comes to church. And that's who the church is made up of. All those people. And so, of course, they're going to have issues. And I'm going to tell you here in a moment why the Bible makes such a huge emphasis on the Corinthian ministry. And I think it'll be a delight to you. What about the city of Corinth? Now, here's uh, the God's sovereignty at work. Corinth was not on Paul's original itinerary. It was not in his plan to go to Corinth. It was a, it was a, a last-minute decision. And Corinth changed the whole strategy of Paul's ministry. His original strategy was to go to the Jews. That was, that was his strategy, to preach to the Jews and to bring his brothers in Judaism to faith in Christ. But now his strategy began to be to reach raw pagans. And his strategy switched over from reaching predominantly Greek peoples and Greek culture to Roman peoples and Roman culture, which I, I know for us that that's, doesn't seem like a big deal, but it, it would be uh, tantamount to us saying ministering in central California and suddenly being transferred to uh, Nicaragua. A totally different ministry. And so his, his uh, entire ministry strategy changed because of Corinth. Corinth had a nickname, and the nickname was Little Rome. Little Rome is called, Corinth is called Little Rome um, because it was now a strategic city rebuilt as a Roman city. There was a Greek Corinth that was destroyed uh, by Rome in 146 BC. Um, The city basically just didn't do anything for about 100 years. Rome rebuilt it. And now they started from scratch. The street patterns, the architecture was all Roman. Uh, It was said that if you couldn't afford to go to Rome, at least go to Corinth. Because you could see kind of what Rome was like. And so it was, it was not a Greek city. It was very Roman. The official language in the city of Corinth was not Greek. It was Latin. So we praise the Lord that God uh, gave us a man named Paul who not only knew Hebrew, but knew Greek and knew Latin. And so he was probably preaching in Latin much of the time. Now, the written language of the world was still Greek. Thus, First and Second Corinthians are written in Greek. This was a, a, a huge city for its day, um, 250,000 people. And I know that doesn't seem like a lot to us, but in that particular culture, it would have been the third or fourth largest city in the entire Roman Empire. And so people of prestige and money and, and, uh, and wealth came to Corinth. Corinth is what gave Paul confidence to not be ashamed of the gospel because he basically saw the power of the gospel in total raw pagans. Do you ever share the gospel with somebody and in the back of your sinful mind, you're thinking, I don't think this guy's ever going to get saved. Because you just see, he he seems so far gone and we kind of tend to question the power of the spirit. Well, that, that was everybody in Corinth, was that they were just too far gone. But it gave Paul that confidence to not be ashamed of the gospel In fact, uh, during his third visit to Corinth, Paul writes Romans. And in Romans 1.16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and the salvation. You could have put a little asterisk and said, I'm here in Corinth. If they can get saved, anybody can get saved. Which brings me to the whole point of why is so much of our New Testament, why is so much of Paul's writing devoted to the city of Corinth? Well, the emphasis is very simple. The big message is, if the gospel can transform the Corinthians, the gospel can transform anyone. And so when you're speaking to someone and they say, I think I'm too far gone, you turn them to 1 Corinthians. Oh, look at these idiots. If these guys can get saved, anybody can. 
And I know we put down the city of Corinth and all of that. Uh, Corinth in Paul's day was like L.A. or New York or probably mostly like San Francisco. It was the, it was the moral dregs of society. But you in heaven will meet Corinthian believers who are glorious and who were faithful and who stuck to the gospel. So that's, that's Corinth. Now, the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians have an unusual feature which none of the other books in the New Testament do. And that is, is that they are two of four letters that Paul wrote to the city of Corinth. So I need to take some time to walk through this with you. And by the time I get to this, I can't actually remember how to work this. So let's see if I go the right direction. Yay. Okay. Um, So you don't have to write this chart down if you don't want to. It'll be available online. But I want to walk through this because this is really important to understand Paul's relationship to the city of Corinth and to the church there. His initial 18-month evangelistic ministry and planting of the Corinthian church, this is recorded in Acts 18 and 19, this happened from the fall of 50 A.D. to the spring of 52 A.D. It's about 18 months. That was his longest ministry stay so far. Usually he just stayed for a matter of weeks or months. This was the first time in his missionary journey that he could take his time in one place. So now we have what we'll call letter A. It is his previous letter. And this is referenced in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. This is his previous letter. He reminds them, he reminds them in 1 Corinthians 5 that he had previously written to them to not associate with a professing Christian who was also immoral. So one of the first issues that um, Paul had told them was if somebody says they're a believer, they're in the church and yet they're still having an adulterous relationship. They're still being incestuous. They're still cheating in their workplace. You cannot call them a believer and you cannot associate with them. You've got to purge the church. And so 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, in fact, are some of our greatest texts on church discipline and why uh, it's so important to keep the church pure. Well, apparently, though, they, they misunderstood. And what they thought was that you, you kick out all the unbelievers who are exploring the gospel because they're immoral. Well, what do you have now? Now you have legalism. And so what he clarified to them was, no, you don't, you don't discipline the unbeliever who says, hey, I'm still wondering about Christ. You only discipline the one who calls the name of Christ, who calls himself a believer, and yet continues an immoral lifestyle. So he, he needed to clarify that. He was keeping them from being legalists. Um, and that's a good lesson for us. How do we feel about the person visiting who says, I don't know about this whole Jesus thing, but I'll sit and listen. We welcome them and we love them. And we, we're not surprised when they're living in an immoral lifestyle. Of course they are. Um, we, don't have, we don't have cause to discipline them, as it were. We also see that uh, Paul received a report from Chloe's household and a letter from the Corinthians that was delivered by three men, Stephanatus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, and they had questions for Paul. So this is four years now after his first stay. We have this report in this letter in the spring of 56. And if you've read 1 Corinthians, um, it's, a, it's a great structure. Chapters 1 through 6 are Paul's official... Uh, official um, I'm sorry, chapters 1 through 6 are Paul's unasked for counsel regarding the rumors and the difficulties that were brought to him verbally. They had, a, they had an official list of questions for Paul, but I know how it is. Um, when I'm doing the Q&A as a pastor, nobody asks the real questions they want to ask. They ask the ones they're willing to ask in front of a bunch of people. And I'd like to have a real questions only, please, Q&A, but that's really hard to get people to do. Chapters 1 through 6, he addresses the real questions. Then in chapter 7 to the end of the book, he says, Now to all the questions you wrote me. So you have that report in that letter in spring of 56. So in response, Paul writes letter B, we'll call it, and that is 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians is his second letter to the church at Corinth. And he writes this in the spring of 56. He addresses the hot topics reported by Chloe's household in chapters 1 through 6. And he addresses questions uh, in the rest of the book. This is, by the way, the biblical precedent for a pastoral Q&A, is to ask shepherds questions. So Paul visits Corinth very soon after. 
And so he's written 1 Corinthians and he goes to visit them. Now, after writing this letter where he answers all their questions, what should he expect? He should expect what any uh, former pastor coming back to a church that he planted, of course, should expect a, a wonderful reception. You know, maybe a, a good old church potluck after church and, and some time in, in some key members' homes and meeting with the leadership. That's not what happened. In the spring of 56, shortly after 1 Corinthians was delivered, he went to visit them and he called it his painful visit. 2 Corinthians 2, 1, 2 Corinthians 12 and 13 call this his painful visit. He had to leave quickly. It didn't go well. They basically ran him out of town. They ran him out and it ended negatively. And so Paul writes them a third letter, still in the spring of 56, letter C, we'll call it. And he calls this his sorrowful and severe letter. What kind of letter ought an apostle write to a church who treats him that way? It should be filled with sorrow and filled with severity. And it was. This was the response to Paul's second painful visit trying to rectify the situation. And so he writes this letter where he rebukes them and he confronts them big time. 2 Corinthians 2, 3 through 9 references this letter. 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 12 references this letter. So now... What, what would any normal human being be doing? He's written this letter. He's dropped a bomb on them. He has confronted them. He's drawn a line in the sand. He's told them, you have been terrible. You have been horrible. Who do you think you are? And now what's he doing? He's waiting anxiously. In the spring of 56, Paul left Ephesus and he went to Troas to wait for Titus. Titus was the one who delivered the letter, the, the sorrowful, the severe letter to them. And Titus was supposed to come back to Ephesus. Titus... Didn't make it there, so he goes to Troas. Um, and he didn't make it there. And so, finally in Macedonia, Titus catches up to Paul, and he gave him the good news. And the good news was that the Corinthians had repented, they responded well, they were eager to see Paul, they were eager to uh, hear from him, and that all was well. So Paul writes his fourth letter, letter D, which we have as Second Corinthians. And it's his letter of relief. He writes this in probably the fall of 56. 2 Corinthians 7, 5 gives us our closest approximation of a date. He expresses relief at the success of the sorrowful and severe letter. And I'm going to take a, a little side note here. The Corinthians were on the precipice of a, um, of a big decision. And that was having a shepherd who had the courage to tell them the truth and to confront them on their sin. And thankfully, as a church, they turned and they repented. What do you think would have happened to them if they hadn't? I, I think the letters to Corinth would be a lot shorter and maybe they wouldn't, that we wouldn't have them. Of course, in God's sovereignty, it was always going to happen. But it, is a, it was a great lesson that you say what you like about the Corinthians, but when it came to being confronted by the word of God, by a man of God, they, they repented and they responded, as all of us ought to do. Paul had to afflict them. He had to rebuke them. And so he opens... In 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions. Some of the afflictions he's talking about are the ones that he inflicted upon them. It's like if you have a small child and you have to discipline that child and you spank that child, you don't spank with a smile, right? And you spank and you cause pain. You're supposed to cause pain. The book of Proverbs says, uh, how much pain should you cause? He says, don't worry, you won't kill the child. You cause enough pain to make the child think they're going to die. That's, that's the kind of pain you cause. But when they repent, what happens? Exactly what Paul does. He embraces them. He comforts them. He hugs them, as it were, with words. And he encourages them that God is a God of comfort. And so now he makes his third visit to Corinth in the winter of uh, 56 or 57 and then 57 as well. And while he's there, he must be at some sort of peace with the church at Corinth because that's when he writes the book of Romans. And he sees firsthand the power of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And so uh, he's there living that um, absolute joyous truth. So let me just give you a little summary. Paul makes three visits. He writes four letters. First and second Corinthians are the second and fourth letters. 
Now, what is the obvious question that you might have? What happened to the other two letters? Why don't we have them? Are we short two books in our Bible? Well, the simple answer is that if, if those two letters were inspired and if they were meant to be part of the canon of Scripture, then they would be there. There are, there are no undiscovered books of the Bible. And we're not going to dig up 3 Corinthians and go, oh, no, this is the one where he says that salvation is not by grace alone and we're totally off base. The other letters aren't part of the canon of Scripture, and so they're unnecessary. They are part of the canon of the overall uh, interaction with Corinth, though, because both letters are mentioned and they're both seen as important enough to be mentioned in First and Second Corinthians. So uh, you don't have to worry that you have an incomplete Bible. Your Bible is complete. All right, that's all of the, that's all of First and Second Corinthians. Let's do as much of. Oh, you guys are in trouble because I don't have a clock back there, so I'll have to I'll have to uh, look at my watch on occasion. So let's look at First Corinthians. We'll start with the historical and theological themes. Uh, first theme, the call to holiness. You see this in, in a dozen places in 1 Corinthians. You have the Holy Spirit mentioned. You have the human spirit mentioned. And this is something we don't talk about as much, but there's an interaction between the Holy Spirit and your human spirit. And that's, that is part of holiness. You have the term spiritual or spiritually uh, 12 times. You think about uh, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, one or chapter two, rather, that the things of God are discerned spiritually by spiritual people, and that's where we get our doctrine of understanding that the unbeliever cannot open the, the Word of God and come to a full understanding of what it means until the Holy Spirit works in their lives. You have the pride of the Corinthians, major historical and theological themes. Under their pride, you have their self-styled wisdom. Uh, and this is, I think the church at Corinth is so instructive for us today. If you've ever walked into a church where you realize they're just making stuff up, that's the church at Corinth. They, they went with a little bit of information. Um, and you've heard the old saying that a little bit of information is a dangerous thing, right? They didn't know what they didn't know. And so they were dangerous. They, they thought they knew things. And so they were self-styled. Um, when you think you know everything, you become arrogant and you become boastful. And that was an issue that Paul had to deal with. With them, they had an overassessment of their own knowledge. Um, a phrase that Paul uses numbers of times in First Corinthians: "Do you not know?" In First Corinthians, there is a flavor of Paul uh, overwhelming them with his knowledge, and sometimes that's a necessary part of shepherding. When when somebody says something ignorant to you in a way that that says, "No, this is absolutely true," and I know it because I read it once on the internet. And that's, that makes it true. Sometimes a shepherd must say, let me give you 15 reasons from things you know nothing about why what you're saying is false. And so Paul does this multiple times. He said, don't, don't you know this? Don't you understand? And he's sort of testing them. They didn't know what they didn't know, which causes arrogance. So you have the call to holiness. You have the pride of the Corinthians. You have the theme of the body. Chapter 6 through 13, chapter 15. You have the theme of the physical body. You have primarily the theme of the body of Christ, the church. You have the body of Christ represented in the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians 11 is where we get our greatest instruction on, on how we are to present the Lord's table in the church. And so um, when we think about, we don't even think about it anymore. When we say uh, the body of Christ, all of you know what I'm talking about. All of you know that we're talking about the church. Uh, we even say, welcome to this body of believers. And the average person on the street say, why, why do you reference the body? We all know this because of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is where Paul first enumerates this, uh, this metaphor, and it's now become part of our language. And then, of course, along with the body, you have the church. The church is called God's temple in chapter 3. It's called the body of Christ again, and, and then we have divisions in the Corinthian church. And boy, you have in uh, chapters 1 through 4, chapter 11, Paul just nails them for their division. And he, he absolutely uh, hammers them for it. But then he says something very interesting early on in 1 Corinthians. Um, he says, I know there's divisions among you. And he says, in part, I believe it and it's necessary 
Why is division sometimes necessary in the church? Because it, shep- it separates the faithful from the unfaithful. Those who truly want to follow Christ from those who don't want to follow Christ. What's been the greatest separating factor over the past few years? It was COVID. COVID had a glorious impact on the church because it, it separated true believers from, from false believers. Because once persecution starts, especially in America, where we're not used to this at all, when persecution heats up just a little bit, not like a torch, not like a furnace, but just a little flame, poof. Boy, the unbelievers scatter. And that has a wonderful purifying effect on the church. Um, when the, if you've read a little bit of history, when the Iron Curtain began to fall... Uh, back in the late 80s, and Russia and all of the USSR began to have a little bit of freedom, the true church in USSR was not excited about that. You want to know why? Because they knew that false teaching was going to start to come in. They didn't have a false teaching problem in Russia before, the, before freedom came. You want to know why? Because there were no false teachers willing to risk their lives for it. And so the Russian church was not excited about freedom because they were a purified church. And the minute the Iron Curtain came down, the minute the Berlin Wall came down, false teachers began flooding into the former USSR. So, um, so when Paul sees division, it's not entirely a bad thing. Now, it has to be cleaned up and it has to be taken care of. But it does separate the true from the false. Those are the major themes. And you have the purpose. We get to a very, this is where you get the real pastoral nature of 1 Corinthians. Paul applied Christian solutions to the spiritual problems at Corinth. And what was the result? He was looking for a holy church. And this would have been a brand new concept to them. That they, they have all these issues and he applies scripture. Now, he has to apply some new Ideas that are revealed to him from the Lord. Why does he have to apply some new ideas? Because there's new situations that the Old Testament does not address. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, and I, I don't have time to go into this, but it has an interesting seeming contradiction in terms. In one part in 1 Corinthians 7, which is all about marriage and singleness and divorce and remarriage and, and, and that entire topic. And in one instance, Paul says, I received this from the Lord. And in another instance, he said, I did not receive this from the Lord. This is from me. Well, wait a minute. Is Paul saying, well, this is just my opinion? No. When he says, I received this from the Lord, he is going back to principles found in the Old Testament already. When he says, I did not receive this from the Lord, but this is from me. This is new revelation from the Lord. It's not based in previous scripture. Why? Because the Old Testament does not address some of the issues now with Corinth. The Old Testament doesn't address what happens when you have a married couple and the husband comes to faith in Christ, but the wife doesn't. The Old Testament doesn't address that. Paul now must address that. And so uh, he's applying Christian solutions to these spiritual problems. And so that's why uh, 1 Corinthians 7 in particular comes across as very proverbial. And what do I mean by that? The book of Proverbs is a set of truths that is generally true if applied most or all of the time. Uh, We'll talk about this later this morning. But uh, train up your child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Is that an absolute ironclad promise? Those of you with adult children say most of the time, but not always. 1 Corinthians 7 is the same. And much of 1 Corinthians is very proverbial. Here is the truth. Here is the principle. Apply this to your life. Trust the Lord. And this is, a, this is an incredible concept for us. Because in the church in America, um, if we would take a page from First and Second Corinthians, what we would find is that when you have a problem, when you have an issue in your life, you apply scripture to it. And I, I, maybe at Grace Bible Church you say, isn't that obvious? That's not obvious in most evangelical circles. I have pastor friends that I've gotten into debates with because they have this mindset. You can come to me for counseling once or twice, but if I can't solve your problem, I'm going to send you to the professional. What does he mean by that? To the psychologist, to the psychiatrist down the street. That's, a, that's totally insane to think that way. And so Paul is applying Christian solutions. Here's what would be pleasing to the Lord. Therefore, do that. That's the purpose. And you can see up there the literary structure. 
conveniently alliterated for you. You have divisions in the church, chapters 1 through 4. By the way, I love the fact that Paul addresses division first. Why is that important? Because you can't address the other stuff until you just nail the division down. Um, you, you can't pretend it's not there, and he doesn't do that. Then you have disobedience in the church, and he's upfront about that. Chapters 5 and 6, and he openly says, here's the list of things that if you're still doing them, you're not saved. If you're still an adulterer, if you're still a thief, if you're still a reviler, you are not saved. You are, you are not in the kingdom. And then you have the difficulties in the church. This is where he gets really uh, very, very pastoral, answering all of their questions to the best of his, his ability uh, through the Holy Spirit's use of his abilities. So there's the purpose, literary division. Let's go through some of the interpretive issues. Okay, uh, by show of hands, um, how many of you think you could guess what the number one interpretive issue in the book of 1 Corinthians is? The one that the American church deals with the most. Just, just tell me if you think you know what it is. Oh, come on, you have more confidence than that, right? All right, I know Ed knows. He's like, I know what it is. All right, if you raise your hand, yell it out. What's the, what's the biggest issue? Tongues. tongues, that's right. The gift of tongues. So, let's talk about that. That's the major interpretive issue here. Chapters 12, 13, and 14. I don't have time to really explore this issue adequately. Um, later this summer, I'm going to preach a whole message on this issue just to kind of lay this to rest and so that all of you have, uh, you know, when somebody comes to Grace and they're in the back whispering, I should have bought a Honda, but I bought a Toyota instead, um, that you help them out and send them the message I'm going to preach. But the gift of tongues, uh, even among those who believe they still exist, have, a, have quite a number of interpretations. Some call them uh, angelic speech. Where do we get this? 1 Corinthians 13. Even if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, right? If you study that, Paul is using what's called hyperbole. It means he's telling a joke. He's exaggerating. So some say it's angelic speech. That The gift of tongues is this, this heavenly speech that's the language that the angels speak. Others think it is liturgical or archaic or, or rhythmic phrases that you, that you say over and over again. That's kind of a minor view uh, held by uh, older like Presbyterians and so forth. Um, some say it's ecstatic speech. Now, this came about because of experience, not because of Bible study. Why do some say it's ecstatic speech? Others would, would call it... Uh, uh, a prayer language and things like that. And that's actually a separate category. Why do they call it ecstatic speech? Nobody believed that until the failure of the Pentecostal movement. The failure of the Pentecostal movement was that the Pentecostals um, in the early 20th century genuinely believed that the gift of tongues was operating the way it did in the New Testament, which meant speaking human languages you hadn't learned. They sent missionaries all over the world who were saying, I should have bought a Honda, but I bought a Toyota instead. And natives were going, what are you talking about? And they came home and it failed. So they changed their theology from being human language to ecstatic speech because they weren't going to back up and say, sorry, what we built our whole movement on was completely wrong. So is it ecstatic speech? There's, there's no basis for that in scripture. Although, uh, that, that would be what the general charismatic today would say. Others call it the language of the heart, released and articulated, or a prayer language. That it's the language in which you pray, or, or it's, it's how you really release your heart. Let me ask you a question. Um, if you read the book of Psalms, do you feel that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the psalmist is releasing his truest heart? Of course you do. Why do we not have Psalm 151 that's gibberish? That's, that's like, looks like code language. And it just says at the bottom, this was David's true heart language. Our true heart language is the language you were taught. So what is the gift of tongues? It is human languages. And really a, a first year Bible college student could figure this out with just a little bit of study. It's the only option from the word used for, for tongues, glossa, it's... It means a language. It never means ecstatic speech or angelic speech or anything else. It just means a language. Now, I think it helps us to uh, understand the function of the gift of tongues. What was the function? Acts chapter 2 was a similar situation to Corinth. 
uh, in that Corinth was a magnet for people of many languages in the, in uh, as being called Little Rome. At the time of Pentecost, Jerusalem was a magnet for people of many languages, Jews of many languages. They were there um, for Pentecost, and they were coming from all over the world. And so, what was the purpose of the gift of tongues? How useful would it be if you're in a cosmopolitan city that has never heard of a program called Rosetta Stone, or where you can't really take classes on how to understand other languages, how useful would it have been for the Apostle Paul to be able to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ in the language of every single person seated in the room? To uh, put out of business any Spanish ministry or Portuguese ministry or Greek ministry just to speak and his words are understood. How useful is that? Let me put it this way. The gift of tongues was the internet of the day. It was the way to spread the gospel at lightning speed and no other message, no false message got through uh, except the message of the gospel. And so what a tremendous gift. The gift also had a purpose of making an impact on those who come to the assembly in in. Chapters 12 through 14, it's called a sign to unbelievers. An unbeliever walks into a a church meeting and hears a preacher preaching the gospel in his language. And he goes, man, I'm from northern Russia where there's eight people on the planet who speak my language. How is this possible? It was a sign to unbelievers that miracles were happening and it displayed the validity of of the apostles' message. Now, we have in 12 through 14, the insistence by the Apostle Paul that you need interpretation. That if you're going to have the gift of tongues, you must have interpretation. A person is speaking in a known language, but he doesn't know what he's saying. And someone in the gift of, gift of interpretation would know. And so, basically what you had was an incredible way that God dealt with the cosmopolitan nature of big cities like Corinth, um, like Jerusalem. The gospel was spreading like wildfire. Now, there's a little side note here. The gift of tongues also had another purpose. It undid, theologically, the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, humanity was separated by languages. Now humanity is being brought together by means of the gift of languages, the gift of tongues, to hear the gospel at lightning speed. Now, you might say, well, but this is such a big deal. You know that this is the only New Testament letter that deals with the gift of tongues at any level. It just, it just is the only one. It was a very regulated gift. Um, I, I know some of you have been in worship services if you want to call it that, in charismatic churches that range from mildly organized to just absolutely nuts and chaotic. Um, and there's always the latest movement. Uh, a few decades ago, there was the laughter movement. Then there was the, the people barking like dogs movement and, and all these things. You just walk in and say, you know, sane atheists wouldn't do this. So why are professing Christians doing this? But as you read 1 Corinthians, especially verse uh, chapter 14, It was very regulated. It was not meant to be this weird, ecstatic thing. It was one person speaking the gospel to a group in a language that they could understand. It was another person speaking the gospel to a group in a language they could understand. It was then being interpreted. It it was a way to say, we could have 20 different languages represented and all of them hear the gospel in one meeting. That's phenomenal. And that, that is part of the reason that the gospel spread so quickly. Many uh, historians, church historians, think that there was a specific part of a worship service to say, this is the part where we're going to speak the gospel to all those who have not understood the word we're saying so far. And so you would have had uh, that time in the service. This gives us our pattern for what we might call a well-ordered worship service that is still spirit-directed. Spirit-directed does not mean spontaneous. Okay, just so you know, spirit-directed means directed by the Holy Spirit um, in appropriate measure to what the Bible says. Would we say that Grace Bible Church has a spirit-directed service? I hope so, because we've been praying all week long for it. And we've been praying and we have planned very carefully exactly what to do. Uh, Would we say we have a spontaneous worship service? Not as long as I draw breath, because spontaneity always leads to trouble, right? Um, I, I even I use really extensive sermon notes and the things I always regret saying are the things that weren't in my notes. 
I go back and I have to tell James, could you take that minute out? That was really dumb. I don't, I don't like what I said there. So, Spirit-directed, yes. Spontaneous, no. Now, within the part of their service where um, they might have somebody ask, uh, for example, you know, who here is from uh, this part of the world? And you have three people raise their hand. Okay, I'm going to preach the gospel to you. And we understand that. That's not spontaneous. That's, That's planning what they had to do. What is the majority position in today's circles that still believe in the gift of tongues? The majority position is that what happened in Corinth was different than Acts chapter 2. What happened in Acts chapter 2? Very, very clearly human languages being spoken, because there's 15 of them listed. And if you ask the majority of uh, charismatic or Pentecostal theologians, they would say, well... What happened in Corinth was totally different. Things had changed. And so now you have the ecstatic speech. You have the prayer language. You have uh, all the things that we said are not legitimate. Small problem with that is chronology. When Luke wrote Acts 1 and 2, 1 Corinthians was already written. In other words, Luke would have referenced and looked at 1 Corinthians Do you think that Luke would have said uh, anywhere, even in a little footnote, because Luke was very intellectual, very detailed, more so than any gospel writer. Do you think he would have said this is different than what happened in Corinth? He absolutely would have said that because Corinth, first Corinthians had already been written. So that doesn't hold any water. By the way, Luke was Paul's companion. You know this. So they would have discussed this at length. And part of Luke's investigation for writing the book of Acts would have been interviewing Paul. What happened in Corinth and how does that compare to to the day of Pentecost? So do we have the gift of tongues today? No, we don't. Why not? Well, first of all, it would come under the category of what the book of Hebrews calls the gift of uh, apostolic gifts. And probably our our easiest way to to look at this is Hebrews chapter 2. And I'll just read this to you. Hebrews 2. Uh, verses 3 and 4, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, that's Christ, it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. What is the key element of verses 3 and 4? It's in the past tense. That this is what used to happen. 1 Corinthians is one of the earliest books that Paul writes, and he, he gives spiritual gifts, gifts of miracles, gift of tongues, gift of prophecy, and so forth. Those things disappear from his later uh, lists. Um, even as early as Romans uh, 12, those things are, are gone. Yes, he still lists the gift of prophecy. Um, it doesn't mean foretelling of the future. It just means to proclaim the word of God. So the gift of tongues is gone. We don't need it. Um, we, we had a time where you didn't have a New Testament and we had a time where God let the gospel spread like wildfire. Now what do we have? We have things that are even better than the gift of tongues. We have uh, preachers. We have a completed Bible. We have printing presses. I, I know that sounds kind of old school, but we still use those, believe it or not. Just try ordering a book on Amazon and it comes like, wow, a printing press. We have the word of God, which can't be squelched. So, it had a great purpose. Now, uh, I, I don't want to confuse anybody, but there is some evidence that the gift of tongues may return in the millennial kingdom. Um, I, I won't get into that because I don't care about that right now. We, we, we don't have it here. I'm going to uh, pause at this point because I want to spend time on the next interpretive issue, which is the silence of women part. And I don't want to open that can of worms without being able to close it. Um, properly, so we'll leave off there. But let me just take a minute or two or three. Does anybody have any questions about the whole gift of tongues issue? Because that's that's a big issue for us, and not in our church, but for uh, us theologically here. Any questions? Yeah, I have a. a I was reading the other day, and you're talking about the Pentecostal church after 1900, but it looks like those things were popping up like popcorn with all kinds of different. They all didn't follow the same doctrine. Yeah, well, even in even in the the question is uh, 
I, I, I'm going to see if I interpret your question right. That yes, the Pentecostal church popped up in the early 1900s, but that movement popped up all over the place simultaneously. I wouldn't call it simultaneously. We can trace um, back all the way back to a guy named Charles. Is it Parham? Do you remember? Jay, do you remember who that guy is? Charles was it Parham, P-A-R-H-A-M, I think. Yeah, and that, that, was, that was where the whole thing started. And even in the early 1900s, there was enough, uh, there was enough media that it spread like crazy. And what it did was it played into a, a bunch of people who had been going to churches that were just dead with liberal theology. Liberal theology began to take over the church in the late 1800s. And so what you have, you have either professing believers or true believers who are going to church thinking there must be more to this. There must be more than somebody standing up and saying that, well, only 12 places in the Gospels actually are what Jesus said. And we don't really think that God did miracles. And we don't really think that creation happened. Um, the evolution is actually true. The Bible just tries to fit into it. And people were going, I'm tired of that. I want the power of the Spirit. And when something that looked like the power of the Spirit began to be very popular, it just blew up like wildfire. And part of it was because... Um, well-meaning believers felt like there was more. And they were right. There is more. We call it walking by the Spirit. Um, So uh, I think the movement can be traced to one particular place and time, but it spread quickly within weeks. And it popped up fast. So, um, because, you know, uh, people would come and visit a a meeting. And I've read accounts of this. Pastors were frustrated that their preaching was powerless and that their congregations were anemic and that people just looked dead. And pastors would go to these meetings and they would experience some sort of ecstatic experience, which is easily done with social psychology, by the way. Um, uh, Social psychology is a very simple, that's that's bright, a very simple concept whereby you can, I just made all of you look at me, right? Right? I manipulated every one of you. Look at me. Sorry to use that word. But um, (laughs) so these pastors would go back to their churches and they would start doing this weird stuff. They would say, I have learned a prayer language. I should have bought a Honda, but I bought a Toyota instead. And it just felt so refreshing and so exciting to their whole churches. Their their people would go out and bring people in like crazy. So the movement just exploded. Um, To this day, there's an estimated 500 to 700 um, million people involved in charismaticism today. So it hasn't quit. So, uh, yeah, it popped up very, very quickly, but I think it can be traced to one particular event uh, in Southern California, ironically. So, good question. That was in about what year? 1901 to begin, and then bigger in 1906. Yeah, what, what, what was kind of, I've heard... There were definite landmarks, definite landmarks where um, some of the bigger landmarks were when seminaries and entire um, entire denominations began to get on board uh, in the late 50s, early 60s. One of the biggest things that happened was the Catholic charismatic movement, where now you didn't have to believe the gospel. You could still stay Catholic, but now you had, ironically, like um, I would have agreed with Catholic priests who were who are pulling their hair out going, what's happening to our churches? I mean, we can't even maintain a good cult without these people coming in. So, yeah, they're definite landmarks. And I'm not a church historian by any stretch. I told you pretty much everything I know. But um, here's the interesting thing. Think about this. Um, I, for example, I can trace my spiritual heritage. I trace my spiritual heritage to uh, two grandfathers who had mildly good doctrine, but they believed the, the gospel. They were both pastors. Um, my father got saved under my grandfather's preaching in the Free Methodist Church. Free Methodist Church is an offshoot of Wesleyanism. Wesleyanism uh, was an Arminian offshoot of the Great Reformation. The Great Reformation goes back to the time before the Great Reformation when uh, men like John Huss and, and others were laying the foundation. I can trace my spiritual roots. If you're charismatic, it stops at 1901. You cannot trace your spiritual roots. So what do they call that? From the book of Joel, they say, well, this is the latter reign of the Spirit. And they say, well, this is a brand new thing. Uh, it's not. It's not. If you study the book of Joel, that's talking about something that hasn't happened yet. 
So, good question. There is a hand over here, too. So, so the question is, um, what about somebody who says, I've been in a foreign country uh, and I've, I've witnessed or I have a friend who witnessed the gift of tongues in action? Yeah. This would be the same group that says, uh, I've witnessed demons being cast out in churches and I've witnessed uh, miraculous healings uh, as well. So they'd be all in the same camp. The, the big overall answer, the easy one, is that you never judge theology by experience. I don't care if I've seen it. I don't, I don't care what happened. Um, Satan is really good at, at uh, producing miracles. Uh, think about the magicians in Egypt that were able to do some of the things that Moses did. These were not, these were not guys who ordered uh, you know, Dr. Presto's magic kit off of the Internet. These were demonic, dark arts wizards, we might call them. So is it possible to... to, um, to uh, uh, replicate some of those gifts? I, I think that's why uh, so-called faith healers have made billions of dollars off of it because they, they have just enough success uh, powered by Satan and powered by their own trickery. So the first thing I would say is I don't judge anything by experience. I don't judge any theology by experience. So let me, put, let me give it a different instance. Well, I know that my grandfather went to heaven I know he did because he was such a good person. He was in church all the time. Now, he always said that all roads lead to God. He always said that, but he was such a good person. And I believe by my experience, there's no possible way that he is not in heaven while denying the biblical gospel. So you cannot judge, um, you cannot judge theology by experience. But the fact is, I would defy anybody to give a verifiable documented case of miraculous healing by a healer. Now, do we believe in healing? I believe in healing with all of my heart because we serve a God who heals. I don't believe in healers, though. They don't exist. You don't need them. And they're all, they're all shysters. So um, would I pray for you to be healed if you're sick? Absolutely. Also trusting the sovereignty of God that the best thing that could happen to you is die and go to heaven, right? So when somebody says, well, I've seen it, the simple answer is, I don't judge theology by experience. I judge theology by what the Word of God says. And the Word of God says is that tongues shall cease, 1 Corinthians 13. Do you tell people with these experiences that they were demonic? I, I would tell them, I don't know what it is. You'd be careful. It's easily faked. I remember in college, I got hooked up with this charismatic group, and I found myself like cornered by 50 people. And I didn't know anything, so I was reading like crazy. And one guy said, well, you, you can't fake the gift of tongues. I was like, that's the easiest one in the world. Watch. And so I did a demonstration of how to fake the gift of tongues. That, that's not a very nice thing to do. Um, so I, I, I don't know if I tell them it's demonic. I tell them it's not of the Lord. It's not of the Lord. And, and if they, and look, if somebody says, I'm going to stick to this. Great. Well, then just get them in the Bible and let the word of God speak to them. And and uh, but it's a horrible thing. When I was, I'll take one more minute. When I was pastoring in Texas, um, we had a young lady. I'll never forget her as long as I live. Um, we had in this little town in Texas, uh, like a billion little tiny churches, and three gigantic charismatic churches, and it just just turned this town into the darkest pit of hell you can possibly imagine. And this little girl. 21 years old. She came to our church for some reason. She had, she had grown up. She was literally born and raised in the nursery and in, in children's church and all that in the biggest charismatic church in town. And for some reason, she broke off from her parents. She came to our church on the Sunday I was preaching on why the gift of tongues have ceased. And she grew up in this. And she came and talked to me. And she's bawling. And she says, I believe you. You made your case from the word of God, but what do I do now? You just took away everything I have that is spiritual. You took away everything I have that means anything to me. You took away my quiet time. You took away my prayer life. You took away how I relate to everybody I know. You took away how I relate to my family. What do I do? 
And so for her, we just had to get her in the Word of God and just watch her blossom like crazy. So the charismatic movement is wicked to the core because it keeps people down, keeps people from knowing God. So uh, short answer, we don't judge theology by experience. You just don't do it. You just refuse to do it. I wish I had time for more questions. We can continue them next time. Let me pray and, and thank the Lord for our time. Thank you, Father, for this beautiful room to sit comfortably at tables and to think about your goodness and your word. What a joy it is to be here. And, and Lord, our discussion here, the gift of tongues, first of all, it's astounding that you would give this gift to reverse the, the difficulties you had to give, the discipline you gave at the Tower of Babel. The gospel of Jesus Christ spread like fire across a prairie because of the gift of tongues. And now we have a completed Bible that begins in the beginning and ends with come soon, Lord Jesus. We have the power of the spirit. We have the power of the word. We have the fellowship of the saints. And so we're thankful to you for a completed Bible. We're thankful to you for the revelation that is complete We're thankful, as Jude says, for the faith once delivered. And so we give you thanks for those things. Let us, Lord, be faithful to you. We pray now for our coming time of formal worship together that we would come with humble, joyful, broken, fearful, and and excited hearts to meet with our God. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.